listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Diker. Thanks for joining me for episode 39, Reading Law with Scalia and Garner. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. So there's no interviews this week, just a book review. Um, it's a little bit more than that. If you practice law in Florida, this might be of interest to you. And if you're in my target audience of appellate geeks, and this will almost certainly be of interest, unless it's something you already know. But only one way to know for sure. Cue the bumper music. So I don't normally do book reviews, but I wanted to talk about a particular book that you've probably heard of. Reading Law, the Interpretation of Legal Texts. It's by the late Justice Antonin Scalia and the well-known legal writing scholar Brian Garner. I'll talk more about the substance of the book later in the podcast, but for those of you who aren't super familiar with it, I want to give just a quick overview before I talk about why the book is important. Ostensibly, this book is a guide to interpreting legal texts, whether statutory or otherwise. Uh, 50 of the 400-ish substantive pages in the book are dedicated to discussing the application of interpretive canons, a few of which will be unfamiliar to experienced lawyers. Many of them are so old they have recognized Latin names like expressio unius est exclusio alterius or justum generis. But the Scalia-Garner book is a lot more than that. It's a book with a point of view. Scalia and Garner are self-avowed textualists, and unsurprisingly, perhaps, their book advocates the supremacy of text principle and the role of judges in adhering to this principle and the fidelity to the text to improve predictability and consistency in the law. Now, undoubtedly, this judicial philosophy is, it's not, shall we say, universally accepted. But this is just a book, right? You can take it or leave it. This is just a secondary authority at best. It's a scholarly review of principles of textualism and canons for interpreting legal text. Well, maybe. But when is a book not just a book? Maybe when it's been subject to wholesale adoption by the courts of Florida and most everywhere. Think about this. The Scalia-Garner book has been essentially adopted by Florida courts as an authoritative guide to textualism and a roadmap as to how to properly read and interpret the law, statutes, contracts, everything legal. So that's why it's important. I want to talk about the book and hit some of the highlights, but I feel like that's burying the lead a little bit. First, I want to talk about the breadth and scope of the impact this book has had on American jurisprudence, but particularly on the Florida courts. To get a handle on this situation, I took to Westlaw and did some research. The Scalia-Garner book has been cited in 57 Florida cases, civil and criminal, as of the date of this recording. That includes nine sites in the Florida Supreme Court, but more on that in a minute. The book has been cited in every Florida appellate district, but most often in the 4th DCA, with 23 sites in that district. So I thought I'd take a look at when did this start. The book was first cited in Polkinen versus Polkinen, It was a first DCA case in 2013, in an opinion authored by Judge Stephanie Ray, who's now chief judge of the first DCA. The timing makes sense because the book was first published sometime in late 2012. 
The citation in the case was inauspicious. The book was cited together with an 11th Circuit case for the proposition that, if possible, every word and every provision is to be given effect. None should be ignored. And it was related to interpretation of the Uniform Interstate Family Support Act, the UIFSA, which is Chapter 88 of the Florida Statutes. So that was the first time. It was again cited by the first DCA in a per curiam opinion the next year, in 2014. And then the floodgates opened. In 2015, Florida appellate courts cited the book 13 times, including the first time in the Florida Supreme Court. The first mention of the Florida Supreme Court was in a dissenting opinion by Justice Kennedy in League of Women Voters versus Detzner. Then the next year, 2016, five mentions in Florida appellate courts, including the first mention in a majority opinion in the Florida Supreme Court by Justice Quince in Villanueva versus State with regard to interpreting a criminal statute. The book was only cited twice in Florida courts in 2017, then in 2018, eight times, in 2019, five times. Now, another interesting fact, it's not until this year, it's not until 2019, that the second DCA cites to the book, in an opinion by Judge Matt Lucas, with reference to a thorny grammatical issue in a jury instruction in Dooley versus State. But then in 2020, things really opened up. The book has been cited 22 times so far, with about three months left to go in 2020. It's been cited in every appellate district and in the Florida Supreme Court, including the first appearance in the 5th DCA in 2020 in Dungarani versus Benoit, a opinion by Judge Sasso relating to rules and statutes relating to requests for a trial de novo uh, following a non-binding arbitration. But now by the time the 5th DCA cited to the book in August, it was already the talk of lawyers around the state. I think the discussion reached a peak after the Florida Supreme Court authored the opinion in Advisory Opinion to Governor Regarding Implementation of Amendment 4, the Voting Restoration Amendment, which was a per curiam opinion in 2020. The opinion actually came out very early. It came out January 16, 2020. The opinion contained a very frank description of the court's current judicial philosophy and signaled a shift from the past. But this court has sometimes suggested that the first step in construing a constitutional provision may involve something other than determining the objective meaning of the text. We believe that such statements can be misleading because they may be understood to shift the focus of interpretation from the text and its context to extraneous considerations. And such extraneous considerations can result in the judicial imposition of meaning that the text cannot bear either through expansion or contraction of the meaning carried by the text. We therefore adhere to the supremacy of text principle. The words of a governing text are of paramount concern, and what they convey in their context is what the text means. And they cited, of course, to Scalia and Garner's book, Reading Law, Interpretation of Legal Texts. Now, it's worth noting the Supreme Court at that time was composed of Chief Justice Kennedy and Justices Labarga, Polston, Lawson, and Muniz. Justice Labarga concurred in the result, but dissented in largest part to express his disagreement with the court's announced textualist approach. 
The last sentence of his dissent summed it up. I also dissent to the majority's unbending application of the supremacy of text principle to Florida law, to the exclusion of available extrinsic evidence that would assist the court in construing constitutional and statutory provisions. Now, I will admit, I didn't own and hadn't read the Scalia Garner book before this opinion came out. It was on my list of things to read, I just hadn't gotten there yet. I enjoy Scalia's writing on writing, and Brian Garner too, and I've been working my way through their back catalog for both of them. I agree with most of Brian Garner's non-footnote-related advice, but I digress. The opinion in the Amendment 4 case put the Florida legal community on notice. You better read this book. I bet a lot of you folks went out and bought it that week. I know some of you told me that you did. Now, just for fun, I decided to also take a look at the federal courts and other state courts, and I wondered, are we unusual? Do other jurisdictions place the same importance on the principles described and cataloged by Scalia and Garner? When I broadened the search out to all state and federal jurisdictions, I came up with 1,642 sites to the book. The book's been cited in opinions in all federal circuits, including the D.C. Circuit and the Federal Circuit. The most sites, interestingly, was in our circuit, the 11th Circuit, 115 citations, and the second most was in the 5th Circuit, with 86. The least sites I found were actually in the 1st Circuit, only 5. It's pretty low uh, as compared to the others. For those who need a reminder, the 1st Circuit is Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Puerto Rico, and Rhode Island. And the book was cited 40 times in the U.S. Supreme Court. If we drop down to the state level, uh, the book was cited in most of the 50 states, plus the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. I did a little comparison. I found sites in every state except a handful. Hawaii, Idaho, Louisiana, Maine, Mississippi, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Just for fun, I decided to compare sites to the Scalia-Garner book across all federal and state jurisdictions to the Holy Bible. The Bible lost, 1,632 to 1,327. Considering the relative ages of the two books and the number of copies in circulation, that's pretty impressive. Without question, Scalia and Garner's text has had a huge impact, not only in Florida, but most everywhere. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at www.courtsurety.com or toll free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. I suggest you take an opportunity right now Add CSBA's contact information to your own contact list so that you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency, but they're very involved in the local Florida appellate community. In fact, CSBA is a global sponsor of the appellate practice section of the Florida Bar. If you want to learn more about supersedious bonds, check out Episode 9 of this podcast, Nothing Rhymes with Supersedious and an in-depth discussion with CSBA President Dan Huckabay. The next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. 
These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. So on to the book itself, Reading Law, the Interpretation of Legal Texts by Justice Scalia and Brian Garner. It's published in 2012 by Thompson West. It's not a small book. It's 608 pages. In hardcover, that's about two inches thick, so clear some space on your bookshelf. It's also not an inexpensive book either, retailing for $49.95. Just before recording, I checked on Amazon.com. You can purchase the book for $47.95 in hardcover or $45.55 in the Kindle version. If you're a sucker like me, you might have both versions. There's a forward by Judge Frank Easterbrook, a well-known judge of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. The forward is worth reading. Judge Easterbrook talks, in part, about his opinions on the importance of this book. This book is a great event in American legal culture. One of your co-authors is the preeminent legal lexicographer of our time. As for your other co-author, not since Joseph Story has a sitting justice of the Supreme Court written about interpretation as comprehensively as in the book you are holding. And continues, Every lawyer and every citizen concerned about how the judiciary can rise above politics and produce a government of laws and not of men should find this book invaluable. The authors of the book also open with their own statement of the purpose in the preface. Our legal system must regain a mooring that it has lost, a generally agreed-upon approach to the interpretation of legal texts. In this treatise, we seek to show that, one, the established methods of judicial interpretation involving scrupulous concern with the language of legal instruments and its meaning are widely neglected. Two, this neglect has impaired the predictability of legal dispositions, has led to unequal treatment of similarly situated litigants, has weakened our democratic processes, and has distorted our system of governmental checks and balances. And three, it is not too late to restore a strong sense of judicial fidelity to texts. The book itself, the substantive portion, is about 400 pages. It's not as intimidating a read as you might think. Most of the discussions of the principles of textualism are contained in the first 50 pages. Scully and Garner work you through the how and the why of the book. In the process, you're introduced to a number of hypotheticals and case studies, including the increasingly well-known hypothetical of a park with a no vehicles in the park sign. What vehicles are prohibited? Cars, ambulances, bikes, skateboards, baby strollers? It's a fascinating exercise in textualism and can help you decide how you feel about the process in the context of a simple and easily understood scenario. I've read the first 50 pages a few times, and I find it to be a great introduction to the Scalia-Garner version of textualism. The next 350 pages are devoted to 57 different canons of interpretation, divided into semantic, syntactic, textual canons, and more. Many of these will be familiar to you. Words are presumed to have their ordinary, everyday meanings. An interpretation that validates outweighs one that invalidates. The expression of one thing implies the exclusion of others. The text must be construed as a whole. You get the idea. Each canon has a short name, a concise statement of the canon, and a thorough analysis of the principles with key case sites and examples. There's also 13 falsities exposed. Some of these may be surprising to you. I will tell you this is a spot where the book, again, definitely has a point of view. 
You may find some of it surprising, but I bet you'll find it interesting. I'll leave that to you to explore. I think the book is largely designed as a reference. You could consider reading the first 50 pages, scanning the rest, and consulting the list of canons as needed when you're faced with interpretive issues. So, how do I sum this up? Regardless of whether you tend to agree with Justice Scalia and Mr. Garner, this is an important book. As I pointed out, the book is cited by courts all over the country. Textualism is certainly an approach that needs to be considered anytime you face an interpretive issue. In 2015, Justice Elena Kagan famously said, we're all textualists now. And she certainly didn't mean textualists in the way Scalia endorses. There are degrees of adherence to textualism, and the devil is in the details. But the smart lawyer in Florida needs to be familiar with this book and its principles. Whether your interpretation argument adopts a Scalia-Garner approach or not, this is a lens through which it could be evaluated, both by the trial court and the appellate court. Anticipating that approach can help you to form the best argument for your client. Thanks for listening. I hope that was helpful or at least interesting. Legal infotainment. I'm planning out a schedule for podcasts 41 to 50. Let me know if you have any ideas for topics or you want to be a guest on the show. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice and nothing that I say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. Next episode should release in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.